0: section forty two of english literature by william j long this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter Ten continued part One: the poets of romanticism william wordsworth seventeen seventy eighteen fifty it was in seventeen ninety seven that the new romantic movement in our literature assumed definite form wordsworth and coleridge retired to the quantock hills somerset and there formed the deliberate purpose to make literature adapted to interest mankind permanently which they declared classic poetry could never do helping the two poets was wordsworth's sister dorothy with a woman's love for flowers and all beautiful things and a woman's divine sympathy for human life even in its lowliest forms though a silent partner she furnished perhaps the largest share of the inspiration which resulted in the famous lyrical ballads of 1798 in their partnership coleridge was to take up the supernatural or at least romantic while wordsworth was to give charm of novelty to things of every day by awakening the mind's attention from the lethargy of custom and directing it to the loveliness and the wonders of the world before us the whole spirit of their work is reflected in two poems of this remarkable little volume the rhyme of the ancient mariner which is coleridge's masterpiece and lines written a few miles above tintern abbey which expresses wordsworth's poetical creed and which is one of the noblest and most significant of our poems that the lyrical ballads attracted no attention note, the lyrical ballads were better appreciated in america than in england the first edition was printed here in eighteen o two End of note and was practically ignored by a public that would soon go into raptures over byron's *Child harold and don juan is of small consequence many men will hurry a mile to see sky-rockets who never notice orion and the pleiades from their own doorstep had wordsworth and coleridge written only this one little book they would still be among the representative writers of an age that proclaimed the final triumph of romanticism life of wordsworth to understand the life of him who in tennyson's words uttered nothing base it is well to read first the prelude which records the impressions made upon wordsworth's mind from his earliest recollection until his full manhood in eighteen o five when the poem was completed note the prelude was not published till after wordsworth's death nearly a half-century later and of note outwardly his long and uneventful life divides itself naturally into four periods one his childhood and youth in the cumberland hills from seventeen seventy to seventeen eighty seven two a period of uncertainty of storm and stress including his university life at cambridge his travels abroad and his revolutionary experience from seventeen eighty seven to seventeen ninety seven three a short but significant period of finding himself and his work from seventeen ninety seven to seventeen ninety nine four a long period of retirement in the northern lake region where he was born and where for a full half-century he lived so close to nature that her influence is reflected in all his poetry when one has outlined these four periods he has told almost all that can be told of a life which is marked not by events but largely by spiritual experiences wordsworth was born in seventeen seventy at cockermouth cumberland where the derwent fairest of all rivers loved to blend his murmurs with my nurse's song and from his alder shades and rocky falls and from his fords and shallows sent a voice that flowed along my dreams it is almost a shock to one who knows wordsworth only by his calm and noble poetry to read that he was of a moody and violent temper and that his mother despaired of him alone among her five children she died when he was but eight years old but not till she had exerted an influence which lasted all his life so that he could remember her as the heart of all our learnings and our loves the father died some six years later and the orphan was taken in charge by relatives who sent him to school at hawkshead in the beautiful lake region here apparently the unroofed school of nature attracted him more than the discipline of the classics and he learned more eagerly from the flowers and hills and stars than from his books but one must read wordsworth's own record in the prelude to appreciate this three things in this poem must impress even the casual reader first wordsworth loves to be alone and is never lonely with nature second like every other child who spends much time alone in the woods and fields he feels the presence of some living spirit real though unseen and companionable though silent third his impressions are exactly like our own and delightfully familiar when he tells of the long summer days spent in swimming basking in the sun and questing over the hills or of the winter night when on his skates he chased the reflection of a star in the black ice or of his exploring the lake in a boat and getting suddenly frightened when the world grew big and strange in all this he is simply recalling a multitude of our own vague happy memories of childhood he goes out into the woods at night to tend his woodcock snares he runs across another boy's snares follows them finds a woodcock caught takes it hurries away through the night and then i heard among the solitary hills low breathings coming after me and sounds of undistinguishable motion that is like a mental photograph any boy who has come home through the woods at night will recognize it instantly again he tells as of going birds nesting on the cliffs oh when i have hung above the raven's nest by knots of grass and half-inch fissures in the slippery rock but ill-sustained and almost so it seemed suspended by the blast that blew amain shouldering the naked crag oh at that time while on the perilous ridge i hung alone with what strange utterance did the loud dry wind blow through my ear the sky seemed not a sky of earth and with what motion moved the clouds no man can read such records without finding his own boyhood again and his own abounding joy of life in the poet's early impressions the second period of wordsworth's life begins with his university course at cambridge in seventeen eighty seven in the third book of the prelude we find a dispassionate account of student life with its trivial occupations its pleasures and general aimlessness wordsworth proved to be a very ordinary scholar following his own genius rather than the curriculum and looking forward more eagerly to his vacation among the hills than to his examinations perhaps the most interesting thing in his life at cambridge was his fellowship with the young political enthusiasts whose spirit is expressed in his remarkable poem on the french revolution a poem which is better than a volume of history to show the hopes and ambitions that stirred all europe in the first days of that mighty upheaval wordsworth made two trips to france in seventeen ninety and seventeen ninety one seeing things chiefly through the rosy spectacles of the young oxford republicans on his second visit he joined the Girondists or the moderate republicans and only the decision of his relatives who cut off his allowance and hurried him back to england prevented his going headlong to the guillotine with the leaders of his party two things rapidly cooled wordsworth's revolutionary enthusiasm and ended the only dramatic interest of his placid life one was the excesses of the revolution itself and especially the execution of louis the sixteenth the other was the rise of napoleon and the slavish adulation accorded by france to this most vulgar and dangerous of tyrants his coolness soon grew to disgust and opposition as shown by his subsequent poems and this brought upon him the censure of shelley byron and other extremists though it gained the friendship of scott who from the first had no sympathy with the revolution or with the young english enthusiasts of the decisive period of wordsworth's life when he was living with his sister dorothy and with coleridge at alfoxton we have already spoken the importance of this decision to give himself to poetry is evident when we remember that at thirty years of age he was without money or any definite aim or occupation in life he considered the law but confessed he had no sympathy for its contradictory precepts and practices he considered the ministry but though strongly inclined to the church he felt himself not good enough for the sacred office once he had wanted to be a soldier and serve his country but had wavered at the prospect of dying of disease in a foreign land and throwing away his life without glory or profit to anybody an apparent accident which looks more to us like a special providence determined his course he had taken care of a young friend raisley calvert who died of consumption and left wordsworth heir to a few hundred pounds and to the request that he should give his life to poetry it was this unexpected gift which enabled wordsworth to retire from the world and follow his genius all his life he was poor and lived in an atmosphere of plain living and high thinking his poetry brought him almost nothing in the way of money rewards and it was only by a series of happy accidents that he was enabled to continue his work one of these accidents was that he became a tory and soon accepted the office of a distributor of stamps and was later appointed poet laureate by the government which occasioned browning's famous but ill-considered poem of the lost leader just for a handful of silver he left us just for a ribbon to stick in his coat the last half century of wordsworth's life in which he retired to his beloved lake district and lived successively at grasmere and Rydal mount remind one strongly of browning's long struggle for literary recognition it was marked by the same steadfast purpose the same trusted ideal the same continuous work and the same tardy recognition by the public his poetry was mercilessly ridiculed by nearly all the magazine critics who seized upon the worst of his work as a standard of judgment and book after book of poems appeared without meeting any success save the approval of a few loyal friends without doubt or impatience he continued his work trusting to the future to recognize and approve it his attitude here reminds one strongly of the poor old soldier whom he met in the hills note the prelude book four End of note. who refused to beg or to mention his long service or the neglect of his country saying with noble simplicity my trust is in the god of heaven and in the eye of him who passes me such work and patience are certain of their reward and long before wordsworth's death he felt the warm sunshine of general approval the wave of popular enthusiasm for scott and byron passed by as their limitations were recognized and wordsworth was hailed by critics as the first living poet and one of the greatest that england had ever produced on the death of Southey, eighteen forty three he was made poet laureate against his own inclination the late excessive praise left him quite as unmoved as the first excessive neglect the steady decline in the quality of his work is due not as might be expected to self-satisfaction at success but rather to his intense conservatism to his living too much alone and failing to test his work by the standards and judgment of other literary men he died tranquilly in eighteen fifty at the age of eighty years and was buried in the churchyard at grasmere such is the brief outward record of the world's greatest interpreter of nature's message and only one who is acquainted with both nature and the poet can realize how inadequate is any biography for the best thing about wordsworth must always remain unsaid it is a comfort to know that his life noble sincere heroically happy never contradicted his message poetry was his life his soul was in all his work and only by reading what he has written can we understand the man the poetry of wordsworth there is often a sense of disappointment when one reads wordsworth for the first time and this leads us to speak first of two difficulties which may easily prevent a just appreciation of the poet's worth the first difficulty is in the reader who is often puzzled by wordsworth's absolute simplicity we are so used to stage effects in poetry that beauty unadorned is apt to escape our notice like wordsworth's lucy a violet by a mossy stone half hidden from the eye fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky wordsworth set himself to the task of freeing poetry from all its conceits of speaking the language of simple truth and of portraying man and nature as they are and in this good work we are apt to miss the beauty the passion the intensity that hide themselves under his simplest lines the second difficulty is in the poet not in the reader it must be confessed that wordsworth is not always melodious that he is seldom graceful and only occasionally inspired when he is inspired few poets can be compared with him at other times the bulk of his verse is so wooden and prosy that we wonder how a poet could have written it moreover he is absolutely without humor and so he often fails to see the small step that separates the sublime from the ridiculous in no other way can we explain the idiot boy or pardon the serious absurdity of peter bell and his grieving jackass poems of nature On account of these difficulties, it is well to avoid at first the longer works and begin with a good book of selections. Note: Dowden's Selections from Wordsworth is the best of many such collections. See selections for reading and bibliography at the end of this chapter. End of note when we read these exquisite shorter poems with their noble lines that live forever in our memory we realize that wordsworth is the greatest poet of nature that our literature has produced if we go further and study the poems that impress us we shall find four remarkable characteristics one wordsworth is sensitive as a barometer to every subtle change in the world about him in the prelude he compares himself to an eloian harp which answers with harmony to every touch of the wind and the figure is strikingly accurate as well as interesting for there is hardly a sight or a sound from a violet to a mountain and from a bird note to the thunder of the cataract that is not reflected in some beautiful way in wordsworth's poetry of all the poets who have written of nature there is none that compares with him in the truthfulness of his representation burns like gray is apt to read his own emotions into natural objects so that there is more of the poet than of nature even in his mouse and mountain daisy but wordsworth gives you the bird and the flower the wind and the tree and the river just as they are and is content to let them speak their own message three no other poet ever found such abundant beauty in the common world he had not only sight but insight that is he not only sees clearly and describes accurately but penetrates to the heart of things and always finds some exquisite meaning that is not written on the surface it is idle to specify or to quote lines on flowers or stars on snow or vapor nothing is ugly or commonplace in his world on the contrary there is hardly one natural phenomenon which he has not glorified by pointing out some beauty that was hidden from our eyes for it is the life of nature which is everywhere recognized not mere growth and cell changes but sentient personal life and the recognition of this personality in nature characterizes all the world's great poetry in his childhood wordsworth regarded natural objects the streams the hills the flowers even the winds as his companions and with his mature belief that all nature is the reflection of the living god it was inevitable that his poetry should thrill with the sense of a spirit that rolls through all things cowper burns keats tennyson all these poets give you the outward aspects of nature in varying degrees but wordsworth gives you her very life and the impression of some personal living spirit that meets and accompanies the man who goes alone through the woods and fields we shall hardly find even in the philosophy of leibnitz or in the nature myths of our indians any such impression of living nature as this poet awakens in us and that suggests another delightful characteristic of wordsworth's poetry namely that he seems to awaken rather than create an impression he stirs our memory deeply so that in reading him we live once more in the vague beautiful wonderland of our own childhood poems of human life such is the philosophy of wordsworth's nature poetry if we search now for his philosophy of human life we shall find four more doctrines which rest upon his basal conception that man is not apart from nature but is the very life of her life one in childhood man is sensitive as a wind-harp to all natural influences he is an epitome of the gladness and beauty of the world wordsworth explains this gladness and this sensitiveness to nature by the doctrine that the child comes straight from the creator of nature our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting the soul that rises with us our life's star hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness but trailing clouds of glory do we come from god who is our home in this exquisite ode which he calls intimations of immortality from recollections of early childhood eighteen o seven wordsworth sums up his philosophy of childhood and he may possibly be indebted here to the poet vaughan who more than a century before had proclaimed in the retreat the same doctrine this kinship with nature and with god which glorifies childhood ought to extend through a man's whole life and ennoble it this is the teaching of tintern abbey in which the best part of our life is shown to be the result of natural influences according to wordsworth society and the crowded unnatural life of cities tend to weaken and pervert humanity and return to natural and simple living is the only remedy for human wretchedness two the natural instincts and pleasures of childhood are the true standards of a man's happiness in this life all artificial pleasures soon grow tiresome the natural pleasures which a man so easily neglects in his work are the chief means by which we may expect permanent and increasing joy in tintern abbey the rainbow ode to duty and intimations of immortality we see this plain teaching but we can hardly read one of wordsworth's pages without finding it slipped in unobtrusively like the fragrance of a wild flower three the truth of humanity that is the common life which labors and loves and shares the general heritage of smiles and tears is the only subject of permanent literary interest burns and the early poets of the revival began the good work of showing the romantic interest of common life and wordsworth continued it in michael the solitary reaper to a highland girl stepping westward the excursion and a score of lesser poems joy and sorrow not of princes or heroes but in widest commonality spread are his themes and the hidden purpose of many of his poems is to show that the keynote of all life is happiness not an occasional thing the result of chance or circumstance but a heroic thing to be won as one would win any other success by work and patience for to this natural philosophy of man wordsworth adds a mystic element the result of his own belief that in every natural object there is a reflection of the living god nature is everywhere transfused and illumined by spirit man also is a reflection of the divine spirit and we shall never understand the emotions roused by a flower or a sunset until we learn that nature appeals through the eye of man to his inner spirit in a word nature must be spiritually discerned in tintern abbey the spiritual appeal of nature is expressed in almost every line but the mystic conception of man is seen more clearly in intimations of immortality which emerson calls the high-water mark of poetry in the nineteenth century in this last splendid ode wordsworth adds to his spiritual interpretation of nature and man the alluring doctrine of pre-existence which has appealed so powerfully to hindu and greek in turn and which makes of human life a continuous immortal thing without end or beginning the recluse wordsworth's longer poems since they contain much that is prosy and uninteresting may well be left till after we have read the odes sonnets and short descriptive poems that have made him famous as showing a certain heroic cast of wordsworth's mind it is interesting to learn that the greater part of his work including the prelude and the excursion was intended for a place in a single great poem to be called the recluse which should treat of nature man and society the prelude treating of the growth of a poet's mind was to introduce the work the home at grasmere which is the first book of the recluse was not published till eighteen eighty eight long after the poet's death the excursion eighteen fourteen is the second book of the recluse and the third was never completed though wordsworth intended to include most of his shorter poems in this third part and so make an immense personal epic of a poet's life and work it is perhaps just as well that the work remained unfinished the best of his work appeared in the lyrical ballads seventeen ninety eight and in the sonnets odes and lyrics of the next ten years though the duddon sonnets eighteen twenty to a skylark eighteen twenty five and yarrow revisited eighteen thirty one show that he retained till past sixty much of his youthful enthusiasm in his later years however he perhaps wrote too much his poetry like his prose becomes dull and unimaginative and we miss the flashes of insight the tender memories of childhood and the recurrence of noble lines each one a poem that constitutes the surprise and the delight of reading wordsworth the outward shows of sky and earth of hill and valley he has viewed and impulses of deeper birth have come to him in solitude in common things that round us lie some random truths he can impart the harvest of a quiet eye that broods and sleeps on his own heart end of section forty two